All right. Hello, folks. Hi, I'm, I'm John Reynolds. I'm moderating the discussion here on the State of Agriculture and the Environment track. And I'm, I'm real frustrated. I want to go ahead and get started here uh, promptly because I'm the only thing standing between now and lunch, <laughs> which is very, very, I'm very cognizant of that. And just want to remind you guys that, uh, that lunch is after this. And so uh, make sure you go out and enjoy that. And uh, anyway, uh, I hope you're uh, very excited to be here on this panel discussion on the State of Agriculture. We have a very, very good panel here. And so I would just remind you to, you know, feel free to tweet uh, often and make sure you use that uh, hashtag on TribuneFest. And also we have the hashtag for this specific track, the TTF Enviro. So whatever tweets you put out there, make sure you have that hashtag and then that'll get routed to where it needs to be going. So in any event, uh, I just wanted to get us started off here again with the state of agriculture. And it's always good to remind ourselves that agriculture is hugely important to the state of Texas. And, uh, and I just want to start off with maybe some salient facts to the discussion, um, specifically about the interplay between agriculture and water. And so uh, uh, this is something that we, that we heard a lot about uh, when we were last year when we were passing the water amendment, but it's, it's always good to remind ourselves again that the state of Texas is projected to have 45 million people by 2060, which is roughly about two-thirds more than the 27 million currently. And that, you know, uh, the, the need for, for new water sources is huge because uh, be before the changes that were, that were authored by the voters last year, uh, the uh, water production was actually on a downward slope while demand was on an upward slope. So uh, that creates a structural issue. And the reason why this is important for agriculture is that the demand for uh, water for irrigation is by far the biggest in, in the state. It, it, it is far surpasses the need for municipal sources as well as manufacturing. And one little factoid that I learned in my research as, as uh, late as yesterday, uh, something one of our panelists tweeted out, that the, between eight, 1982 and 2007, uh, Texas lost 2.9 million acres of agricultural land, and that's more than any other state. And uh, as Tiffany was saying, actually, about 1 million more than any other state. So we've, we've got a lot of issues that, are, that uh, the state needs to address as far as dealing with agriculture, dealing with water, and that's something that our panelists are going to address. And so I wanted to uh, start by introducing them just a little bit here. Uh, Sid Miller over here is the Republican nominee for Agriculture Commissioner. Uh, he represented House District 59 from 2001 until 2013. Uh, during his tenure, he served as chairman of the Agriculture and Livestock Committee in the 2007 legislative session, and he uh, chaired the Homeland Security and Public Safety Committee in the uh, 2011 session. He is a rancher and a nursery and tree company owner, and also, as far as the fun fact, he is also a champion calf roper, a current champion calf roper, as I understand now. Uh, Tracy King, also here to my left, here's the Democratic State Representative representing House District 80. He started his legislative career representing HD 43 from 1995 to 2003. And uh, he also is a, form, uh, is a uh, chair of the Agriculture and Livestock Committee. He uh, chaired it during the 2013 session. Uh, Blair Fitzsimmons is the chief executive of the Texas Agricultural Land Trust, a statewide nonprofit organization. Uh, Talt works to conserve the heritage of rural lands and stewardship that makes Texas unique. Under Fitzsimmons' leadership, Talt has partnered with landowners throughout the state to permanently protect from development a quarter million acres. These lands provide water, wide open space, and scenic views so critical to the quality of life in Texas. Tiffany Dowell 
is an assistant professor and extension specialist, agri- specializes in agricultural law with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension. Uh, she grew up on a family farm and ranch in eastern New Mexico, and she received her Bachelor of Science in Agribusiness at Oklahoma State University and her law degree at the University of New Mexico. Uh, <clears throat> Tiffany worked for four years at a law firm in Albuquerque practicing, practicing civil litigation, and she is pr- licensed to practice law in New Mexico and Texas. And her primary focus now includes water law, property rights, oil and gas leasing, right-to-farm legislation, and litigation between producers and animal rights groups. And we have Jim Sartwell, who is the Director of Public Policy with the Texas Farm Bureau. Uh, Sartwell joined the TFB Senior Management staff in December 2009. And uh, he, he directs the TFB Legislative Commodity and Regulatory Activities and Research Education and Policy Development Divisions. Uh, he has a brief experience working with the American Farm Bureau in Washington, D.C. as a livestock <coughs> economist. He's raised in Seeley, Texas, and he and his father operate Sartwell Brahmin Ranch, a family-owned seed stock and commercial cow-calf ranch operation. And in case you're wondering, one person not here uh, is Jim Hogan, who is a Democratic nominee for Ag Commissioner, and just want to make sure that you guys know that he was invited, but he did respectfully decline the opportunity to appear. Uh, before we begin, we get started here, I wanted to paint for you maybe the broad theme that, that we'd like to address, which is urban versus rural, and how do we keep the rural agricultural side of Texas thriving as the state becomes increasingly modern and urban. Uh, Blair told me once in an interview that the water needed by cities falls predominantly in rural lands, which are privately owned, privately managed, enlisting the help of rural landowners that are for vital to address the uh, state's water challenges. And so I decided, wanted to start off with that question. Again, how do, we, how do we manage water resources in the context of keeping up a, a vital agricultural sector? And I'll, I'll leave that open to anybody who wants to answer it. Well, agriculture is, you know, the second largest industry in the state. Mm-hmm. And it's basically, ever since our inception, it's kind of been the glue that's helped, held our state together. And agriculture is the second largest industry in the state, and we're also the largest user of water in the state. Now, I will say this in defense of agriculture. Since uh, we are stewards of the land and we make our living off the land, and uh, our largest input, at least on irrigated farms, is the cost of producing and, and delivering the water to our crops. So because of that, agriculture has really been way ahead of the game in conservation efforts. Uh, 80% of our, our, our irrigation now is uh, uh, gone to pivot, low-impact uh, pivot irrigation systems. Uh, it's probably less than 20% of the crops that are flood irrigated anymore. Uh, most of that requires, is required by the crop like rice. And we'll probably get into the rice farmers a, a little later. Uh, one thing that, uh, uh, and I, I commend Todd Staples, he's done a great job, is, is take the Ag Culture Commissioner. And I know his number one issue was border security, and, and I get that. You know, I was chairman of the Homeland Security, and I have those relationships down there on the border with, the, with those legislators and, and, and county sheriffs and those landowners, and we won't do any less than that. Uh, but my number one priority is Texas Agriculture Commission, should I be fortunate enough to uh, win that position in the fall, in November, is going to be water. Uh, so that's, that's a big change to Texas Department of Agriculture. You know, it's a nearly $5 billion industry and has uh, nearly 800 employees, but there's not one employee over there that's designated to water. Mm-hmm. So you've so, got, so some, that real, will, that you've got some real plans on, on, on... Oh, yes, sir. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. As uh, I'd also like to chime in here, I, I guess, uh, Jim, I was going to ask you, of course, uh, 
water planning is in the news this week uh, with, with what happened at the LTRA. Uh, they're dealing with how to apportion water from the Colorado River as it goes down the river. And of course, this is, this is a textbook example of, of the issues we're going to have to face in the future. Uh, specifically, could you address what's going on with the rice farmers? Well, the rice farmers down on the west side of Houston in Colorado, Matagorda, and Wharton counties are now in their third year uh, not growing a rice crop. Uh, many of those families down there, third and fourth generation rice farmers that have, that have been at it since, uh, since World War I and since that era. Uh, it's certainly, uh, certainly uh, disturbing uh, for those folks that are down there. Um, I'm tired of versus. Versus doesn't get us anywhere. We don't talk rural versus urban. We don't talk east versus west. When you look at irrigation, agriculture is the number one water user. 70% of our irrigation is, is, uh, is located in the South Plains and, and all the way up to the Oklahoma border. Uh, that's groundwater. If we could get it down here efficiently, Team Boob Pickens would have figured out how to get it done. Less than 20% of our irrigation now uh, comes out of surface, uh, comes out of our surface water. Uh, and we're just at a Versus doesn't get us anywhere. We're looking at things as upper basin versus lower basin. Uh, that, that doesn't get us anywhere when the lakes are at 38% and, uh, and I know anecdotal, anecdotal is anecdotal, uh, but at 38% in the middle of a rain last night, uh, we're still watering medians in Austin, Texas. That's, I'm an economist by training. Financial incentives are really the only thing that drive any behavior at all. Uh, outside of affairs of the heart, uh, and uh, until, uh, you know, we've cut the rice farmers off for three years, have we had serious discussions about what conservation <coughs> basin-wide, statewide is uh, for, for folks who live in town, uh, just like, as, as Mr. Mm -hmm. Miller said, uh, we've seen the tremendous uh, increase in efficiency in agricultural use. Mm -hmm. I guess this kind of points again to one of the unique aspects of Texas in which so much of Texas is, is uh, in private hands, and which points again to the need for a kind of unique Texas solution to borrow freight from another, <laughs> another track. And so I wanted to ask you, Blair, if you, could, if you could maybe expound on that, the role of when we deal with conservation issues, how do we take in, into consideration that, that unique aspect of Texas? Well, certainly, when you look at... You know, when you consider that our 84% of our state, I believe, Tiffany, correct me if this is wrong, is in private rural ownership, we have to consider private lands as a solution to our water problems. And how that land is managed is essential to how that water comes out of the tap in San Antonio or Austin and Dallas. And so we need those incentives for private landowners to continue to provide that, that water um, source. We need, I, I agree with, with Jim, um, we need to reframe the discussion and instead of urban versus rural and us versus them, we need win-win solutions, win-win strategies that are gonna work for both agriculture and the cities. And, um, You've heard me say this because we talked about this, but a, a project that I like to point to as an example is the New York Watershed um, Protection Initiative where New York City was mandated with a $9 billion water filtration plan. They didn't have the money to pay for that, so they went to upstate New York 
and worked with the farming community, the dairy farming community, to help protect their water source. And in the, in the process, they shored up uh, a fledgling dairy industry. And that's the kind of thinking we need in Texas, is that kind of win-win. It's going to be good for agriculture, and it's going to be good for the cities. It's interesting you guys are bringing, again, the need to get away from a versus standpoint, because uh, I think one of the things that is of concern with people is being able to preserve the rural character of Texas. You know, we talk about Texas becoming more and more urban, but the need to preserve the rural character of what we think of when we think of Texas. And so, um, uh, Representative King, I know that uh, this is something I'm sure that is, is very, very close to, to, to your heart as far as trying to preserve the rural aspects of your district. And so, if you talk a little bit about... It, it is. It is important, and it is uh, distressing to those of us sometimes that grew up in rural Texas. Uh, something like two-thirds of the people live in five counties now. Uh, something like that, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think that in order to preserve the rural aspect and the things that are important to agriculture, it, it, it's, at some point, uh, and hopefully it, it's not when we start having food shortages, but some point prior to that, we can educate all of the folks in the state of Texas about how important it is. And a classic case is when they always say, well, irrigated agriculture is the largest user of water. Well, the perception there is, John, that there's a handful of farmers that are benefiting from that. And nothing could be further from the truth. The people that benefit from that are all the people that are eating food and putting clothes on their back, not only in Texas but around the country. Those are the people that are using that water. The irrigator is just the guy that's, that's delivering it to them. And, uh, and I think that that, so when everybody buys in that, it's, that agriculture is everybody's concern, I think that we have a, a lot better shot at it. And what I've found uh, over the years is that, it, it, in my observation, it really doesn't matter when legislators come to vote, and others may disagree with me, um, but it wouldn't be the first time. It doesn't matter whether they're running on the Democratic ticket or whether they're running on the Republican ticket or even to some extent whether they consider themselves conservatives or liberal. You never know how somebody's going to vote when it comes time to pick a winner and a loser between agriculture and municipal users of water, for example, and things like that. Because people behave very, very differently depending on what district they represent, whether it happens to be a suburban district or a rural district. And it, it doesn't have much to do with party affiliation. So I think education of the value of agriculture is going to be one of the most key things that we see. What do you think is key to uh, preserving the voice of agriculture in the legislature? You, you touched on something that's kind of really interesting. You know, what we're seeing with the, with the change in population to, to more urban Texas, the, the number of representatives in the legislature who represent rural areas, you know, we're, we're, we're far away from the uh, days of Pete Laney, in other words. Well, how, I mean, how, do you, how do you preserve the voice of agriculture? You know, Chairman Miller and I represented districts that keep getting larger in geography, and uh, a lot larger when he was in the legislature, and mine did too. It's uh, gotten larger in terms to accommodate it. You know, we're, every now and then we'll have a growth spurt somewhere, we'll have a little boom, and we'll pick up some people. But it's just to continue. You know, there's been some talk about, about enlarging the size of the Texas House of Representatives so that you could have more seats that might they help that type of thing. And it hasn't always been 150 members, by, for example. Uh, by the way, back in the, uh, when, it, when the thing was first put together back in the late 1800s, uh, there, were, there were less than that. And I don't remember the exact numbers, to be honest with you. But it has grown. And at some point back in there, they, when was it? Uh, 
can't remember. They, they, the century, they said 150 as the number, okay. but it, it, it wasn't in the original Constitution that it had to be that way. So there's been talk about that. Uh, there's been a lot of talk, but I, I think that, uh, and like I said, our prayer is it doesn't require food shortage for people to start paying attention. <laughs> but at some point, we need to get the people that, that are not directly involved in agriculture to understand that that is their, that is their game, too. Yeah. John, just if I could comment on that. It, it, on a broader scale, and everything the chairman said is, is correct, uh, but on a broader scale, I like to think of it like this. You know, agriculture, not just Texas, but the whole United States is a matter of national security. Let me, let me expand on that. Okay. Uh, and I can do it briefly. If, if America at some point becomes totally dependent on a foreign power for our food and fiber, We'll lose all of our freedoms. So it's, it's, it's very vital to all Americans, urban, rural, suburban, that we have a strong agriculture economy. We are the world's breadbasket, and we need to remain that. That's one of the reasons that makes us such one, one, of the, one of the world leaders. And as far as rural representation, maybe this is something that your audience hasn't thought about. I've thought about it a lot, and I'm sure the chairman has, and Jim and everybody on the panel. But all my lifetime, Rural Texas has held every statewide office, almost all of them. You know, Governor Perry, come off a cotton farm, was our ag commissioner. David Dewhurst, one of the largest, had one of the largest registered Angus herd in the state, was one of the largest commercial cattlemen in the state. Susan Combs off a big ranch at Marathon. Todd Staples, our ag commissioner. Speakers of the House, you know, Tom Craddock. You know, from Midland, Pete Laney, a cotton farmer. You had Billy Wayne Clayton, a cotton farmer, Gib Lewis. You know, so, so rural Texas was always, you know, they had our back. If, if, if something got through, they'd, they'd protect rural Texas. Now, we, the only person, only incumbents that's going to be reelected in this election is going to be John Cornyn. We're going to have a whole new slate of people. And for the most part, besides myself, Glenn Hager, We'll be the only two true agriculture people. Now, they, we're going to have some great people running this state of Texas. Don't get me wrong. But they, they, they have not grown up and lived that rural heritage, the Western lifestyle, the family work ethic, the family values that we have in, in rural Texas. So I think it's imperative that the leaders on this panel, Chairman King, myself, you know, we've, we're going to have to stand, stand in that gap and continue to make Texas, Texas. Yeah. And I, I actually think I might take that even one step further. And I think obviously having representation for agriculture in uh, you know, the, the Senate and the House is very important. But I think that any of us involved in agriculture, whether or not we're elected officials or not, have to do a better job of sort of telling our story. Um, I mean, you know, we you look at the statistics. I grew up on a farm. It sounds like a lot of us up here uh, were those farm kids. Now, you know, there's people are three generations removed from the farm, which means they don't remember growing up on a farm their parents don't remember growing up on a farm. And so I think it's really important that we do a better job as um, you know, the agriculture industry, just out in the world, telling our story and letting people know, you know we, we talked about, we do work hard to conserve water. Um, you know, we, we are stewards, we're taking care of the land. Our goal here is not different than folks who are very concerned about protecting the land in Texas. And I think getting that message out there, no matter where we are, whether we're an elected official or not, it's very important. Mm -hmm. I want to bring up, uh, maybe uh, uh, pivot this discussion a little bit here. Uh, one of the things that stood out for me in my quick little research on this topic, looking at the demand for water uh, from, from irrigation standpoint, which 
according to the figures that I saw in 2010, it was about 56% of the demand was for irrigation of water. Uh, under the water plans that are, that are current, uh, what's contemplating is shrinking that uh, portion of demand from 56% to 38%. In other words, uh, water for irrigation is going to continue to be very, very important as far as, as, far as uh, water resources in Texas, but the slice of the pie is going to shrink. And so I wanted to kind of uh, throw this open as a topic of discussion as well. How do you manage that? How do you manage a uh, shrinking slice of the pie? I think if we don't get out in front on conservation, uh, then, the, then the battle's lost before it starts. Uh, if we can't get this thing solved and figure out what common sense conservation in town, out in the country, on the farm, off the farm, uh, and if we can't figure out how we're going to pay, and I'm not talking about $2 billion that the legislature and the voters of this, take, of this state wisely set aside uh, to serve as, uh, serve as a funding mechanism over the next 50 years, I'm, I'm talking seriously uh, about basin-wide, statewide, how are we going to make sure that, uh, that, we're, that, we're putting the, that we're putting the resources in and, and that they're appropriately being paid for uh, by, the consumers, uh, by the consumers of water around the state. If we don't get this right when there's 25, 26 million people in this state, there is no way it's going to be right when another 13 million people move here. Um, and probably fortunately for people in Erath County, they ain't all going to Stephenville. Uh, they're going to go predominantly to those five to eight counties uh, the chairman spoke of earlier, but if, if we don't get it right now, there's no way we're going to get it right later. And there's no way if the versus mentality isn't taken out of this now, I don't like our chances of taking it out later. You know, and it's it's not just about um, it's not just about shrinking the irrigation pie. It's also about how do we incentivize the conservation of those watersheds and uh, stream beds and rivers that are part of agricultural lands. So, I mean, those provide essential water resources that um, if we lose them, they're gone. So how do we essentially reward that farmer or rancher for the good management of that water resource? John, we've, you know, most of you, I think everybody on the panel knows, but we have a very good water plan for the state. We have a 50-year water plan. We are planning for that growth of that extra 13, 15 million people coming on. My personal opinion, it's probably overbuilt, but that's a good thing. Too much water is not a problem. Too little water is our problem. So I, I, we are planning for the future. We have the $2 billion from the rainy day fund last election. We also have another $6 billion in bonds uh, here, and also that's $8 billion to address, address these water needs. As agriculture commissioner, I want to do my part to get, get the message out. I've been the only statewide candidate that's been talking about rainwater catchment. Our cities have a, have a they spend thousands, if not millions of dollars each year on stormwater drainage projects. We could simply uh, gutter and collect water off of large distribution warehouses, even homeowners capture that water. We can use it for irrigation, use it for industrial use. You can, you can put a charcoal filter on it, use it for drinking water, whatever you want. And we can t change a liability in, into an asset. Now, the problem is education. We have to convince cities that are in the business of selling water, not saving water. But if they will look at what they're spending on uh, uh, 
stormwater systems versus, versus what the savings on that. We, we've got to change our, our mental attitude. Uh, we need to do some, some things like desalinization. We're talking about that. It's getting, it's getting uh, affordable. You know, seawater is about $800 a cubic foot. Uh, brackish water, we can get that down to $300, you know, an acre foot. The great seaport town, El Paso, has been doing that now for, for about a half a dozen years. So, so we're getting there. Uh, you know, I'm, as Ag Commissioner, I want to have a whole education process. Some of our larger cities, from the time they receive their water until they deliver it to the customer, are losing 30%. Now that's an infrastructure problem. We can address that much cheaper and much faster than building 11 reservoirs and piping water all over the state. So we, we, we need to be prepared to get on top of it. We can do a better job. We're doing a good job, but we can do an even better job than we're doing. May I add to that, John? Yeah, of course. Um, uh, you know, the 50-year water plan, and, and I've served on the Natural Resources Committee for many years, and, uh, you know, to the extent that we can plan 50 years out, which I'm not completely convinced we are able to do that, but, but we certainly need to. And uh, it made an assumption that, that conservation efforts were going to increase and that agriculture was going to continue to lead the forefront on conservation as they have. It also made an assumption that um, there's going to be some water purchases that are going to, that the water is going to go to the money more than necessarily to agriculture. It made some of those assumptions. And, um, but, and we have done a lot on water conservation. Some cities in the state have done a tremendous amount when they were forced to. But that's human nature. You know, we, we lose weight after we have a heart attack. And, um, and people talk about the great water conservation they're doing. But you had never understood water conservation until you've lived in the country and hauled every drop of water to your house in a 55-gallon drum in the back of a pickup truck. All of a sudden, your whole concept of water conservation changes dramatically. And... Uh, some of us have done that, and, and it does change your perspective immensely on it. And hopefully we don't get to that point before people can serve. You hear me say that, but I, I do know that we're fighting human nature, and human nature is not to do anything until they have to or until it gets so expensive, as Jim said, that they, that they feel like they need to do it. it, it so, sounds but like politically, that's a difficult thing to drive up the cost of water. Mm. It, it sounds so you, like you just You can't do it, because if you do it, they'll find somebody that won't do it, and you'll be home. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like this challenge is, 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 is changing mindsets more than anything. Because, yeah. you know, I, I think that the, the, the general public, when they think of we need more water, the first thing they think about, the only thing they think about is, oh, we need a new lake, right? I mean, how, how, do, you, how do you get out there and, and, and make sure everybody understands that there's a whole host of things here we need to do all, all at the same time? We need reservoirs. I mean, reservoirs, unlike groundwater, uh, you know, they do replenish because eventually it will rain. Um, but just opening them up is just practically impossible given the current regulatory structure and uh, everything else that's involved. There again, all, most of them that were built were built back in the 50s after they went through that awful drought. So. Right, right. Um, I guess now is a good time as any to talk a little bit about the water plan because uh, obviously that is the biggest change in water policy that we've seen in a really, really long time. And, and the big thing here is we do now have a source of funding for this water plan, a source of financing for, for a lot of these water projects. And so how this rubber hits the road with agriculture, I guess, would be the question. Uh, what would you like to see as far as being able to have safeguards to make sure that agriculture is properly taken care of as we plan for the future? I think agriculture is going to be taken care of. The legislature, in their wisdom, wrote the conservation and the, and the rural-slash-agriculture 
um, 10 and 20 percent respectively, or 20 and 10 percent respectively in there. It's baked into the cake. Uh, I've not seen, uh, you know, as, uh, as uh, Mr. Miller mentioned earlier, we passed those $6 billion in, in, in bonding extensions, I believe, in 2009 uh, in a constitutional amendment. In a year that a lot of constitutional amendments failed, that one actually passed. Uh, we've had it there. What's the difference between 09 and 10 and today? Uh, was, uh, I think, a, a lot of changes to the construct and, the, and how the Water Development Board um, is, is handling what they're, what, handling, what they're handling uh, and going to take the lead in helping to prioritize among these 16 water planning districts around the state. We've been doing water planning uh, oh, post-SB1 since, uh, since the 90s. Uh, it's just <clears throat> we finally got it all knit together, but I'll take, the, I'll take the chairman and the rest of the commissioners on the Water Development Board at their word uh, because they're going to have 181 very interested people looking down there, uh, looking over their shoulder, uh, making sure the pencils are sharp and making sure that the legislative intent's followed accurately. So you're confident that the governance structure there is good. I mean, is there... The current water plan is driven from the bottom up. It's from these regional planning groups, and it goes right on, right on up and, and all the way. And the, the last people that have influence are, are those three commissioners. Uh, my greatest fear is that that $8 billion, and I think we can do the whole plan with $8 billion, by the way. Uh, Texas, we're not known to be giving handouts, but, but hand-ups. So you use that money as a force multiplier. You extend the loan period. You buy down the interest rate. You guarantee the loans. And as those projects come online and are paid for, then you roll that money into the next generation of, of projects. So $8 billion is probably enough to do the entire project. So... Uh, we, we can get there. Uh, I want to make, I don't, I don't see anyone standing in for rural Texas, for agriculture. Uh, I want to be a, uh, in that role. I want to stand tall for Texas, all Texans. You know, I, I want to stand in the gap and make sure that that money is not allocated on a political basis, but on an as-needed basis. Uh, because that's, let's face it, the political powers in those four or five counties that Chairman King talked about, while we have about 20 towns in uh, West Texas that are out of water, they have zero water. Wichita Falls is now drinking their toilet water. So we need to make sure uh, that we hold that everybody that's involved in that accountable, and we will, and, and, and we'll get there. But I, that's why I think it's imperative that the Texas Agriculture Department now be involved in the issue of water for our state. I would um, say that I'd like to see a greater awareness that land conservation, the conservation of agricultural lands is a low cost strategy for protecting our water resources. We have a lot of very expensive strategies that are coming up through that plan. I serve on the regional planning group, so you know, I see a lot of these things coming up and, and they're valid projects and certainly address immediate needs. But um, again, it goes back to the point that I made earlier that our agricultural lands house those watersheds and those rivers and those stream beds that we can't afford to lose. And so there needs to be an awareness that the conservation of those kinds of lands is a low-cost strategy. Uh, we can do it for a whole lot cheaper than we can build desal plants and pipelines and things I, like that. You know, and that, I think Ms. Fitzsimmons brings up an excellent point that in the whole land fragmentation issue, which I saw in my notes when I was looking at this, is it plays it mm. into that. I mean, because it, it doesn't help those strategies at all. Uh, what, 
what do you do about that? I don't know, but it is an ongoing issue all across the country. Right, I, and I, I guess maybe I want to do another shift here with our, with our conversation. Again, we, we talked about the increased urbanization in Texas, but part of that is urban areas, and I know that uh, you and I talked a little bit about this with Representative King, is that uh, it's not just people moving to cities, it's also people in the cities who are deciding to move out because they want a taste of the country, right? And so that's, that's another aspect of the urbanization of Texas. And so you, you have, again, these kind of uh, uh, the, the front lines out you know, in the outskirts of Austin, the outskirts of San Antonio, the outskirts of all these places where, where, where people want to get their couple acres for their ranchettes, that kind of thing. And so I wanted to maybe talk a little bit about that as far as uh, the, the challenges facing farmers with this aspect of urbanization. One, one of the things that we have, and you're talking about urban encroachment on mm-hmm. Texas farms and ranches. Uh, about three sessions ago, I carried a bill for the Farm Bureau to address that problem. Cities would come out and annex, that maybe they weren't particularly wanting to annex agriculture uh, production land. There may be an industrial complex or some commercial pro- that they wanted to get on the tax rolls. So to do that, they would have to annex everything, ag land, cotton fields, whatever, to get to that land. Well, they would say, no, you just keep on farming, that's fine, we, you know, we're not gonna interrupt you, but all of a sudden you have to get a permit to build a a cow shed, or, and you can't clear uh, brush on your place and burn it anymore, and you can't, you know, pesticide things. So it really, it, you can't farm and ranch anymore. Mm-hmm. So what we did with that bill is we came in, and uh, now before a city can annex an agricultural land, as it is on the appraisal district rolls, they have to offer a non-annexation agreement. And if the landowner signs that, what he's giving up, he says, I'm not going to put any commercial development on this property. I'm gonna keep the family farm going, my dairy, my cotton farm, my rice farm, and we're gonna keep doing it. That allows him not to be annexed, and, but it also allows the city to leapfrog them and annex that property that they're probably after anyway. So that, that's working good, and that has helped curtail the urban encroachment on, on a lot of properties. That has slowed way down in the, last, in the six years that that has been implemented. So we have to come up with more innovative things like that to keep, we're losing, I think your figures were about how much acreage each year to urban encroachment that's going out of agriculture. Yeah, uh, nearly three million acres, right? Yeah, so two million something yeah. acres. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can't sustain that. So we have to do some things like this to, to address that and make sure that we keep you know, production agriculture where it is. Right. And, and, and Tiffany, I mean, there's some legal structures here as far as uh, protection for farmers, right? There are, yeah. I mean, we see sometimes when you've got this sort of urban encroachment issue happening um, where people from the city, like you said, move out to kind of get this taste of rural life and they have their couple acres and they think, you know, I don't know, it's going to be like Green Acres, the TV show, and everything's going to be happy. And, and then we see some issues, um, disputes between the agriculture producers and their new neighbors where maybe they don't care for the smell of the cows or uh, the noise of the equipment, those kind of issues. Um, and, and every state in the country, including Texas, has uh, these right to farm statutes or state laws that provide a defense to agriculture producers um, who are, meet certain requirements uh, from nuisance or trespass lawsuits filed by neighbors. And so you know, I think having laws like that and uh, protections written into laws that, that really work to protect agriculture from issues that come up with urban encroachment are really important. John, if I may, I think, you know, it goes back to the issue of values. And do we as a state, as a society, value agriculture? 
And, and I think about, there's, um, there's a couple of rural counties outside of Washington, D.C. When you drive through, they have big billboards, and they say, we proudly support our county's agriculture. And, and these are rapidly urbanizing, suburbanizing counties. And I think that's the point we have to get to in Texas, that everybody who lives in the cities needs to understand how agriculture benefits them. And that it's in their interest that we have a strong, vibrant agricultural industry. And how the loss of that agricultural land impacts them. And that's really difficult in a state where we've got 142 million acres of privately owned farms, ranches, timberland, and et cetera, to make the case that when we lose that land, it's having a serious impact on us. But yet, for every 1,000 people that move to Texas, we lose 280 acres, I think, is the data that comes out of A&M. So it is impacting us. We just don't see it. And so it goes back to the issue of public awareness and, and public values. Mm -hmm. And again, it, I mean, it's something you can't really quantify, but uh, I mean, this, is, this speaks to, you know, how, how do we think of Texas? What's the, what's the character of Texas, right? I mean, well, it's a short and long-term issue. I think in the short term, back to the, the question of declining rural representation, uh, what us and the cattle raisers and cattle feeders and wildlife and association and all have figured out uh, is, uh, is yes, uh, there are fewer people that hail directly from, uh, from rural Texas. Uh, but... Uh, we can make the case to people who are in Harris County, Dallas, Tarrant, Williamson, uh, both the rapidly urbanizing, uh, suburbanizing counties, as well as what we typically think of as urban, uh, and be able to make the case uh, that support for agriculture uh, is, is not in and of itself support for agriculture. It's either a vote for water quality, it's a vote for private property rights, it's a, it's a vote for keeping the innate Texanness uh, present in this state. The long-term strategy Many of those groups that I just mentioned, the Southwest Dairy Producers and others, have got programs that, that we're have done for years, uh, getting into the schools, trying to trying to get these uh, trying to get these folks um, early, and make sure that they understand that the, that there's a place uh, for agriculture um, along with uh, along with their daily life. Uh, Poly Sci in the in the late '80s, early '90s at A&M, Tracy was the same when you were there. Uh, they taught urban versus rural. I'm finding now increasingly in terms of our difficulty of representing agriculture and kind of getting our point across, uh, it's not urban versus rural. It's some of these folks that are now second and third generation out in Collin County who aren't farmers. It's you know a second and third generation accountant, lawyer, doctor, what have you, that are, that are much further removed from direct ag production than others. Um, the tap always comes on. On average, I guarantee you the average cell phone bill in Williamson County or, or McLennan County for a family is more than their water and sewage bill is combined. And as long as we're there, it just, we're going to have a hard time convincing folks the food's always on the shelves, the tap's always, the electricity's always working when you plug something in. Uh, we've, the, I don't want a reckoning. I don't want us to be hungry. I don't want us to be thirsty. I don't want us to be cold. Uh, or too high. Uh, um, we're in a weird spot. I wanted at this point just to uh, remind the audience there will be time for questions here shortly. So uh, if you want to start thinking about, we have microphones up here on the left and right. If you want to start thinking about when we get done with this last little bit of avenue of discussion, we're going to throw open the floor to questions for you guys. So uh, feel free to come to, to either of these microphones. But before we do that, I, I want to talk about something, I guess, a little bit more recent. Uh, we we uh, 
we, we of course have the explosion of the shale plays throughout the state of Texas, which has been a huge game changer in so many different ways in Texas. But I guess uh, before we start with Q&A here, I wanted to maybe talk with you guys just for a little bit about how this impacts the ag agricultural sector. Certainly a lot of, a lot of where, the, uh, where, the, uh, where energy exploitation is taking place is in agricultural areas. And so we're having to, again, you know, not get away from the uh, verse mentality, but how, how do we work together to be able to manage agriculture and energy extraction at the same time? And, um... Well, you know, we, in, in many cases, the, the surface owner is the uh, mineral owner. So they, they're tied hand in hand. Uh, the energy sector and agriculture, we have mutual enemies. Uh, you know, as I go, we've talked a lot about water uh, this, this morning. And uh, as I go around the state, people often ask me, say, what, what is the most critical issue facing or the most uh, threatening thing that's, uh, for the Texas farm and rancher? And they know water's kind of my deal, and I always talk about that. Well, God's going to bless us with some rain someday, and, and that'll be solved. But the biggest, actually the biggest threat we have to agriculture in Texas, or as a nation, is an overreaching federal government. Where it's a BLM wanting to seize 90,000 acres of farm and ranch land up on the Red River, take it out of production, not compensate the landowners for that. Or it's the EPA wanting to lay claim, usurp the Supreme Court ruling over the Clean Waters Act and lay claim to any water that has a bed in a bank. Uh, they want to regulate that. Bar ditches, come on, give me, give me a break. I mean, that's a huge, Texas has more species on the endangered species list than any other state. Uh, there's 200 more proposed to be on it. Uh, we shouldn't have to fight those battles. Uh, they should, we should be in partnership with the federal government. And I, I'm disappointed that we had to do that. But we spend more time in the agriculture community in rural Texas fighting our own federal government than we do tending our crops in many cases. And definitely, and there's, there's a legal structure here as well as far as, because uh, not so, sometimes, a lot of the time, surface, surface rights and mineral rights are under the same person, but it's not always the case. That's right. I mean, that's something that I think we're seeing with a lot of the folks I work with out in rural Texas, um, where you have the surface rights severed from the mineral rights. So in that situation, one person controls the mineral rights where the other person has the surface. They're usually the one farming the land or, or running cattle on the property. Um, and, and their rights are pretty limited when it comes to dealing with uh, oil and gas production. Um, because that mineral estate's the dominant estate, um, oil and gas companies that have leased the property have the right to use the surface land, and in many cases, unless it's negotiated otherwise, may not have to uh, provide any compensation or, or work with those surface owners. And so that's a major concern for, for what I call bare surface owners um, that are dealing with oil and gas production. There's certainly things that can be done. Um, you know, there's surface use agreements. There's uh, the best thing to do is try to negotiate protections in oil and gas leases for the surface. Uh, but it's definitely an issue that's growing in Texas and one I think is probably going to uh, continue to come up during the legislative sessions. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, just a king off of Tiffany's comment, that we're one of the few major oil-producing states that doesn't have a Surface Protection Act that gives uh, landowners, farmers and ranchers and, and others a um, certain amount of protection that their, their surface is not going to be destroyed if they don't um, control the minerals. And I think that's something that maybe we, we need to take a good look at. I think that's a good, good place to put a halt on this discussion. And uh, I want to say, okay, uh, thank you again for your attention. And, uh, and I think we can go ahead and open up the floor for questions here. We, we've got roughly about 10 minutes before we have to uh,
go ahead and get to uh, get out to lunch. So I guess if you want to start over here. Okay. Um, thank you. I am uh, 45 years old. I grew up in the Texas Pandel. I'm not from a farm and ranch family, but I'm from a family that invested in farmland. And so I think there's a lot of people that have investment property farmland in the Panhandle Plains region that live in urban areas now. So I think that's a different demographic than I've heard ever spoken of. I've been looking for the message to me because my father's 75. In the next 10 years, we're going to have the time where we transfer the wealth that a lot of us have. $41 trillion is going to transfer the United States in the next, we're in the middle of that transfer, right? Um, so as a, um, an economist by training, I'm looking at an investment portfolio, which includes a section of farmland, which has been a great way to preserve money for the last 25 years. It's been a great um, hedge, and it looks to be, it could be a hedge, but what's the biggest volatility is the water. And as confident as you are about that we have a 50-year plan that some say might be a few years late um, for our state, um, that, um, and we do have structures in place and we have some funding, but it's heavily reliant on the strength of regional leadership to make all of that work. And so I, was a, I, I wonder, first of all, my question is, um, I would think that, that the people like me have a very large potential impact in, on what's going to happen over the next 10 years with the agricultural lands that you want to preserve, just because we have a decision of sell it or keep it as an investment property. And maybe I'm wrong, so I would correct me if I'm wrong. That's my first question. And second, as a person who's looking at volatility and whether or not you could invest in that kind of thing and keep it there versus going into something like MLPs that look like a little bit less risky and a little bit fewer moving parts with that, what assurance do we really have? The only thing I can see working is moving water into a commodity with a volatility that makes all the other formulas not work with a farmland. So... That's interesting. Again, uh, talking about water as, uh, as a key part of investing, literally, in the future. So uh, I care to jump in. There are about one. four questions there, not Sorry. two. There's actually about <laughs> four questions in the first one. Uh, I'll go just real briefly and, and let, let everybody else figure out what they're going to say about the second, third, and fifth ones. Uh, but kind of back to the, back to the surface, uh, I think a lot of your questions are, are addressed in, in the question of absentee ownership. Uh, I worked for the extension services in Kansas and Texas for, for years in, in southwest Kansas and in Anaheim, Amarillo, and, and fielded numerous calls, whether it was farm program changes, whether it was changes in leases from people who lived all over the country who sometimes could and sometimes couldn't even tell you exactly where the property was, sometimes could and could not tell you who the current farmer or rancher on that property was. I think the key, without our surface owner protection, the, 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 the hedge, uh, for for uh, less leasing landlord leasing uh, farmers and ranchers or folks who own the surface and don't own the the minerals it's a relationship game there of making sure that you keep enough keep enough interpersonal there where it's just it's not an abstract decision to 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 screw the other guy um, or to or to knock people off in terms of uh, in terms of investments I mean Northern Trust you just you know, Northern Trust is kind of a small player. In that game of of managing and, and securing farmland, now you look at some of these uh, some of these uh, rural ownership uh, groups uh, that are that are well up over a billion dollars now in terms of the value uh, that they purchased and picked up. Uh, I think uh, as long as we continue to manage groundwater in this state, uh, by and large uh, through groundwater management districts, it is going to behoove you as an absentee landowner, uh, whether you're in the North Plains or the High Plains or whatever uh, whichever district you're in. 
to take an active interest in, uh, in how that local groundwater management district is, is handling uh, that underground resource that's there because until we do totally separate it, commoditize it, which again, as I said earlier, if Boone Pickens couldn't figure out how to do it with the resources he can put in it, uh, you might be able to, but I can't. Uh, that's that's going to be my, my point there at the end is, uh, is we are managing them at the local level, regional level, and you're going to have to stay involved with it because it affects the value of your uh, land holding long term. Um, let's go to the question over here. Hi. Um, this question is probably geared towards uh, Mr. Sid Miller, but feel free to chime in. Um, the Texas Department of Agriculture has done a really amazing job um, with helping funding for water systems who are experiencing crises um, in terms of drought um, with the community block development grants, disaster relief, and urgent needs, um, which I think is wonderful. I'm wondering what, what you see as the next step for the agency in terms of expanding, whether it be um, you know, outreach and education, conservation, um, continued funding, and specifically what that's going to look like over the next five to ten years. Okay. Uh, well, the Texas Department of Agriculture in, I believe it was 2003, Mr. Chairman, uh, the Office of Rural Community Affairs, which was set up by the legislature to directly deal with rural communities, infrastructure, infrastructure grants, pull down uh, money from the USDA, uh, water and sewer needs, infrastructure needs. Uh, one thing that people find amazing is the Texas Department of Agriculture is in charge of distributing broadband across the state. So we'll continue to do that. We're, we're, we're getting almost there, which is a, a good thing. Uh, one of the things that, that I would, uh, and I talked to, to uh, Dr. Janik about this in the green room, green room earlier today, there's, there's a segment in the Texas Department of Agriculture that deals with rural health care. I think we, we can expand that and, and dwell on that. And, and people from urban areas say, well, big deal, rural health care doesn't affect me. Well, if you have a car wreck in Monahans or you, or you have a hunting accident at the deer camp, it's going to be pretty important to you that you have good rural health care. And, and, and we, we are um, unfortunately lacking in, in some areas of our state. Uh, we're having a tough time getting uh, doctors and nurses and, and, and quality health care in rural areas of the state. So there's, there's a numbers, number of areas, and, and we'll continue to, to, to work with our rural communities. Was, my goal as ag commissioner is to be the best ag commissioner Texas has ever had. And I want to make Texas, all of Texas, the best place to live and work and raise your family as possible. We have so, a, thank you. a patient questioner over here. Yes. So real quickly, uh, we touched briefly on suburban areas. And coming from the North Dallas area, I saw huge suburban master plans. And they all think that they should have this bright, vibrant green grass in August in Texas, which blows my mind. All this water is being wasted. You know, can you guys touch on a little bit on how that affects our water conservation and what we need to take as a next step to prevent those homeowners from thinking, you know, they, they don't need that. They're wasting that water. So, Well, well I don't it, want to take it. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a, no, I don't want to answer the question. Uh, <laughs> because uh, it's, it's, it's not a good political place to be. But, but um, it, that goes back to what I was talking about earlier. I mean, it, you, you, can, you can force them to do it, but the, the electorate, will uh, replace people that force them to do things they don't want to do with people who don't force them to do things they want to do. And uh, so that's the fallacy in that whole thing. But, but 
I'm not sure that there's a lot we can do until that water, through whatever process, becomes so expensive that they say, you know, I don't want to water that grass anymore. And you see that in some places. But that, that, there may not be a better answer because Lord knows that they've been persuaded and talked to and everything else already. You know, and just, just to expand on that a little bit, because I know there's another couple of questions, and I don't want to run out of time, but being in, I'm, I'm also in the horticultural industry, and, and I understand that industry. And, and we can do a better job. We can still have those green areas, by the way, but we don't have to put St. Augustine grass in. We can put in buffalo grass, very low water use grass. We can use plants that are, that are uh, not high water use plants. We can do some xeriscaping. There's a lot of things we can do. We can still have those green belts and those parks, and we can enjoy those. You, you can go to Arizona and see what they've done out there. They haven't really cut back, or New Mexico, or we're not that extreme, but you, you get that. We, it's, it's, it, we have to change the way we're thinking about water in Texas. We can't continue to do the type of green belts that we've had in the past and, ex, and expect to sustain our, our water uses. Thank you. I think we have time for maybe one or two more questions. Do you have one right here? Yes. Um, hi. Um, I am actually an attorney and now studying urban planning here, so land preservation is a big interest of mine. But um, I was wondering if there's anything that can be done on the state level um, to prevent things like uh, the Exxon Mobile move out. They built a new camp or building a new campus in Montgomery County outside of. Um, Harris County, um, they had, I guess they're, they're closing their, their offices that are already in Harris County, including downtown, and building a new campus on, I believe, Virgin Land in Montgomery County, which is where the Woodlands is. Is there anything that can be done to prevent things like that, which seems, use of land like that seems to only benefit a handful of people at the expense of losing the land and having to build all this infrastructure to... Start, essentially start over in a new county? Is there anything that can be done at the state level? Gosh, I mean, it, it is a legal question. I mean, the one problem, okay, I'll, I'll start with the problem you're going to have with something like that is you, you've got concerns about we've got a free market economy, right? And it's the, the people who are selling the land, it's their freedom to sell that land to who they want to. And if Exxon's the highest bidder, then they have the right to sell that land to Exxon. And so I think that's, you know, we sort of start with that framework. Now, there are certainly decisions that, that landowners, the, you know, the owners of that land could make and things they could do uh, to prevent, you know, urban encroachment and keep the land in, um, you know, uh, its native state or farming or whatever it is. Um, but I, th I think ultimately those are going to be more individual decisions than state decisions. If somebody wants to correct me, you're welcome to do that. We've, we're about to move our, we've been in business with our cow operation since the 1800s, but since 1967, we're about to move our cows the third time because of urban encroachment. Uh, now, the reason why we've had to move it is not because somebody's come out against our will and, uh, and put an apartment building out in the middle of a pasture. It's been because once we owned the land and it was just too easy of an, of an economic decision to sell it, uh, and the second time was we were a lessee, and we've got someone out in Austin County that's ready to put in a big housing development on top of us. Uh, as long as we're a private property rights state, and as long as we're a private property rights nation, um, the question is, and, and I, we haven't talked about it yet, and Blair needs to talk about it because that's why I think she was on the panel, panel to talk about. There are some things that individual landowners can do to, to ensure uh, that the type of development that you're talking about don't occur, and I, I'd hope you'd talk about it. Sure. Yeah, I, I think we'll have to go ahead and, and 
Yeah, you know, one of the tools that we deal with is the conservation easement, and, and a landowner can mm -hmm. uh, voluntarily choose to restrict or to retire the development rights of the property, and in return, they either get tax benefits or they can be compensated for the value of those development rights that they give up. And so that, that's a tool that we have um, available to us. Unfortunately, in Texas, unlike other states, we don't have a source of funding for the purchase of conservation easements. And the majority of our landowning community out there really needs to sell a conservation easement rather than donate a conservation easement. And I would say those strategies need to work hand in hand with incentives for corporations and, and other development to move back into the city centers. There's very much a symbiotic relationship there. And so um, we need, we need uh, kind of uh, an array of tools, if you will. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm sorry, but I'm just that we, we have run out of time, unfortunately, and you guys need to eat, eat lunch. So uh, again, thank you so very much for your great questions and for your attention during this talk. Uh, and again, uh, you know, uh, feel free to come back after lunch and uh, attend the rest of the uh, talks on this track here. Thank you.